Jude, beginning at verse 17. Once again, friends, this is the word of Almighty God. Take care how you hear it. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us again today. Let's all pray. Lord God, we ask that you would grant us the ministry of your Holy Spirit to our minds and to our hearts, that we may understand what we have just read and that you would use your word in our hearts to strengthen us as we continue in the good fight of faith. Give us illumination And give us a love for and an attention to your word this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been working our way through this strange and wonderful epistle of Jude. I wanted to do a a brief three-part series with you. And we come now to the third and final installment today. You may remember in our first sermon on Jude, one of the great emphases we saw was the reality of spiritual warfare. This letter of Jude is essentially our marching orders from Almighty God to his soldiers on earth. In verses 1 through 16, Jude describes the false teachers and the threat they pose to the church. And we are called to war, to fight for holiness in our lives and to fight for faithfulness in our doctrine. You may remember those first 16 verses have much more of a a negative or a defensive tone. Jude is saying, here's what to look out for. Guard against this. Defend against this evil. And then in the next section, verses 17 through 23, we saw how the tone changed. In those verses, it's much more constructive. Against the darkness of these false, treacherous teachers, here's how God's people should dwell in this world, in light and life. Building yourselves up in the faith, he says. Being people of the scripture, remembering the apostolic word, having mercy on those who doubt, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of Christ, keeping yourselves in the love of God. That was and that is the battle plan. And now here in these last two verses of the letter, Jude offers incredible encouragement to us as we march into the fight and into the fray. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. Jude knows exactly what parting words to give as he signs off and sends off his soldiers into the fight and into the fray. Now, notice, notice how differently he ends the letter compared to what he's been writing. Right, he's been giving them, well, Christian boot camp, as one commentator put it. That's what he's been giving them in verses 1 through 23. 
what to be on the lookout for when it comes to the enemy's schemes and what devices and habits to employ as we fight the fight and run the race of the Christian life. But now Jude knows that more than that, in the final analysis, we need deep strength, or excuse me, deep encouragement that the final success of the war will rest not upon the strength of our own arm or the courage of our own hearts, but it will lie somewhere else entirely. I was in a, a presbytery committee meeting a few years ago. We were examining several men uh, in their ordination exams, and there was one man who had done okay on his exams, not stellar, but he needed to revisit them a bit. They weren't awful. They weren't adequate either. And so he needed to do a little touching up before they were ready for final submission. And he was given lots of tips, lots of advice, and, and, uh, and in, insight. And perhaps I think the best thing that was said before the conversation ended was one elder saying, Brother, you need to know that we are for you. We want you to do well. We want you to pass thoroughly. This is not an exercise merely in your humiliation or our ego or vanity. No, we want you to pass these exams thoroughly, not just squeak by, but to be well furnished and thoroughly prepared. We want to see you in ministry, and we want to see God's call upon your life realized. Now, he'd been given plenty of advice on how to retake the exams, what parts to revise, what parts to edit, or to elaborate tips on studying, etc. But ultimately, what he needed to be reminded of was the fundamentally firm and secure ground on which he stood and that he had a group of brothers pulling for him and supporting him toward this end goal. He needed his focus and his gaze to be directed, not so much on his own performance, but rather on the fundamentally secure station that he was in, the fundamental security of his situation and the God whom he was desiring to serve. Well, in a much more profound way than that committee exam ever could be, this is what Jude is doing in these closing verses. Jude, you see, directs our gaze away from ourselves and even away from our enemy, away from the immediacy of our situation, so tunnel-visioned we can be. And he reminds us of the surety of the outcome, and he moves our gaze to fix it upon Almighty God himself. So three things that I want us to see here today from this passage in order to encourage his people, in order to send them off with some resounding parting words and some soul-stirring exhortation, Jude, in these final two verses, tells us of three things. He tells us of a glorious God, he tells us of a glorious gospel, and he tells us of a glorious goal. So first, let's consider how Jude tells us of a glorious God. Now to him, Jude begins, and he completes that thought in verse 25. Now to him, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Jude's concluding word, you see, isn't a warning, is it? Watch out. Watch out for Satan's schemes. Do this in battle. No, he finishes with a burst of praise, with a doxology. Sometimes people will lump doxologies in with a, with a benediction and confuse the two. Now, I don't really lose any sleep over this. You probably don't either. But there are those who do, and just in case you are one of those who do, this wonderful verse, these two verses that we're reading here to, this morning, is not that which is properly described as a benediction, right? that pronouncement of blessing that a minister will often employ at the end of a worship service. No, strictly speaking, a benediction is a pronouncement of blessing, 
a spoken word of favor from God upon his people, and it is then used and spoken by God's ministers on his behalf. It's pronounced upon the people to remind them of God's favorable disposition toward them in Christ Jesus. But a doxology, on the other hand, isn't spoken by God upon the people, but rather it's spoken by God's people unto God, giving him all the glory and all the praise. And so any song that renders praise unto God and focuses on giving God the glory due his name is a kind of doxology. That's what doxology means. It comes from the Greek. Doxa, meaning praise, so it's doxa plus logos. Logos meaning word. Doxa logos, word of praise. This statement is a word of praise utterly captivated by the greatness and glory of God. Now to him, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Judas practically bursting into song here at the conclusion of his epistle. And once again, while the Christian life plods on and the spiritual battle that we endure rages on all sides, Jude is reminding us that we face the battle, we face the conflict, with joy, with joy, strangely of all things, delighting in God and joying in his grace and power. See what he says there in verse 25 as he describes this God that is so worthy of praise? The only God, he says, that there is no other. He is unique. He is independent over all creatures. The only God. But then he goes on. The only God we might supply, namely, who? Our Savior, this God, has rescued and forgiven us and made us his children. Our salvation belongs to him and comes from him. And notice it says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That next clause. The only God, our Savior, even more specifically, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The, the mediator by whom we have been reconciled to God. And then look at the attributes that he ascribes to him. Glory and majesty. The, the, the greatness of his character he's getting at. Dominion and authority. His, his power and the greatness of his rule being confessed in and being confessed and rejoiced in. And all of this, you see, all of these attributes, all of these descriptors of grandeur and majesty, they belong to God from eternity past. They belong to him right now. And they evermore will belong to him for eternity future. Before all time, now, and forever. Jude, you see, is reveling in God. He's delighting in God and his glory, his mercy, his power, his might, his holiness, goodness, sovereignty, and grace. The letter to Jude is odd at times. It might even be rightly called strange, at least to our modern sensibilities. It's sobering, no question, as you take it in from beginning to end. It is heavy. It's a heavy letter. In the weeks previous, we've been taken right into the thick of the machinations and schemes of these false teachers, these enemies of the church, their deceptive plots, their moral failures, the, the dirt and the muck of the hard realities of what's involved in living the Christian life. As Jude exhorts Christians to live lives Godward, contending for the faith, fighting to be faithful, fighting for holiness, it's a lot of sobering realities. It's a lot of, it's a lot of consternation and even aggression and frustration throughout this letter. But then we get here, 
And above the muck, above the beleaguered soldier, battle-worn and weary, above the ugliness of sin and false teaching, above the wounds wrought by a fallen world, Jude sets his gaze on the Lord himself. I love how one commentator puts it. As the bullets fly, as temptation rages, as errors abound, as we contend for the faith and fight for the truth, as Satan assails us and unbelievers mock us, Jude calls us to lift up our eyes to the hills. I lift my eyes up unto the hills, from whence doth come my aid, my help. It cometh from the Lord who heaven and earth hath made. Psalm 121. Face the devil. Face sin. Face wickedness and sorrow and despair and even losing battles with sin. Face insecurity and doubt. Face struggle and strife. And face it all, singing the praises of the only God, our Savior. Here's the application, friends. How do you head off for battle in the coming year? How do you you gird your loins to employ the language of the King James Version? How do you ready yourselves for combat? What do you do in the midst of tumult? What do you do to press on in the Christian life, which is by no means a walk in the park? You make much of God. You delight in Him. You revel in Him. Not, Not just thankful for His benefits, not just delighting in the wondrous aspects that He brings, We aren't just thankful for grace. We are thankful for grace, but we worship the God of grace. We we aren't just bowled over by and praising mercy. No, we love and serve and adore the God who shows mercy to his people for a thousand generations. We Christians do not worship merely an intangible attribute. But we worship one who is him Fill your vision, your mind, your constant preoccupation, your time, your thoughts, your affections, your longings, and fill them with Christ. Study him. Know of his power, his wisdom, his loving kindness, his being, his justice, his holiness, his goodness and truth. The one who is ever one God and yet eternally in three persons. Trinity and unity and unity and trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If we might borrow the language of Hebrews, consider him, Jude is saying. Look long at him as he comes to us in the scriptures and ruminate on Christ. And I defy you to tell me that something doesn't happen in your heart. One of my mentors was fond of saying, what do you think about when you're thinking about nothing else? Or in the words of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May Christ be that treasure and that default occupation. This is, after all, the fundamental premise of our existence. The the telos of our lives and redemption, man's chief end, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as you do, well, I wonder if your heart won't respond with adoration and doxology and worship to this glorious God. And if your heart isn't soaring... If you're not one whose temperament is prone to effusive heights of emotional enthusiasm, you might be a Presbyterian if. If you're not prone to effusive heights of emotional enthusiasm, may I suggest that you come praising him anyway? Our affections are fickle things, you know. Our emotions are not meant to be the infallible metric of the sincerity of our faith. They're not always reliable. 
(laughs) Sometimes we are the worst people when it comes to diagnosing our own spiritual health. Praise him with your lips and trust the Holy Spirit to do the work that he loves to do. Help your heart and soul catch up where God has designed it to be. Give him the glory. Give him the praise. Give him the doxology. And see if God won't take care of your heart and recalibrate your affections in the meantime. How do we go forward into battle? Praising. Doxology to this glorious God. So that's the first thing. But then secondly, Jude tells us not only of a glorious God, but a glorious gospel. Being mindful of this good news is how God's people go forward in the fight. Put another way, not only are we to praise God for who he is, we are to praise him for what he does. God's mighty work in the lives of his people. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Oh, drink that in. Go home this afternoon and just read and meditate on that phrase of that sentence of that verse for an hour. He is able to keep you from stumbling. How many people I've spoken to are fed up of their sin? They're sick of it. They're worn out by it. Not talking even about somebody else's sin, but their own sin. Will I ever put it to death? Will I ever be rid of it? Will it ever stop beleaguering me? Here's a word. God is able to keep you from stumbling. You're not able. You've found that out over and over and over again, haven't you? Striving in your own strength, feeble efforts. It's a fool's errand. But God is able. Isn't that the sum total of the Christian gospel in just two little words? But God. Perhaps one of the most encouraging things a wise Christian has ever said to me was this. Because of Christ, the status quo can be changed. And the status need not remain. You are not a slave to the sinful status quo anymore. Christ has died and Christ is risen. There is hope for a change in reality. It need not be this way, sin-sick Christian. By the power of Christ, you may stare at that sin and tell it away with you. Close quote. We know that the gospel means that sin can be forgiven. Praise God. But that's not all the gospel means. The gospel is good news of forgiveness. But it's also good news that we will be changed. How often we say it around here that the gospel tells us not only of deliverance from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. He is able to keep you from stumbling. In other words, you don't need to stumble. There is grace to help you walk in faithful obedience. God in the gospel frees us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin also. Liberty. Sin is no longer your master, brothers and sisters. You are no longer beholden to its cruel summons. By the power and grace of Almighty God, you may defy sin's impotent enticements. Now, let's be sure, the war against sin won't finish until glory. We will all sin before the end. Only in heaven will the work be finally finished. But if in Christ sin has been dethroned, and Christ is now our master, 
He is able to keep us from stumbling. That was how Jude began the letter. Remember way back in verse 1 when he's setting out that, that initial, that opening salutation? Isn't that a wonderful descriptor of who Christians are? Back in verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. Kept. We fight. We strive. We make war on sin and against wickedness. We contend for truth against falsehood. It's not that we are wiser or better or smarter or stronger than those around us. No, no. It is that God is able to keep us from stumbling. One commentator put it like this. Here are the everlasting arms that will bear us up. Here is the strong tower into which the righteous may run and be safe. Here is a rock of refuge and a mighty fortress. Close quote. Prone to wander? He's able. Praise the Lord that he is able to keep your feet from stumbling. So that's the second thing. A glorious God, a glorious gospel, and then thirdly, a glorious goal or a glorious end result, if you like. Verse 24 again. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, and so on. You see, he's able not just to prevent you from doing bad things, to keep you from stumbling, not just preventing you from sin and, and keeping you at neutral, at, at square one. Yeah, that, that's fine. That'll do. That's good enough. I'm going to redeem my people until they, they get to the state of it'll pass. They'll squeak by. That's adequate. No, no. Positively, he is able to present you blameless. One commentator provided a very wooden, literal translation of verse 24, and I quite like it. It helps us see Jude's point just a little more starkly. He, he renders it like this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to stand you blameless before the presence of his glory. That word present can mean to place before someone, right? To showcase, to present someone upright. He won't let you fall. Christ will stand you up and he will present you blameless before his glory and holiness. Now there's a word for those of you. Those of you who are bent down low with the weight of guilt. Know that Jesus Christ bled and died and is able to wash your guilt away and forgive you now and forever. And with the blood of Christ comes the forgiveness of Christ in order to place you in the robes of the righteousness of Christ. And more than that, as if that weren't glorious enough, more than that, one day when you stand before the presence of his glory, you will stand there blameless. Blameless. Just ponder that for a moment. The presence of his glory. This is the, remember the God that we're thinking about here. The God with eyes too pure to behold sin. The God before whom the angels in the throne room must shield their faces. The God who said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. The God of infinite power and glory and purity and might and righteousness and splendor. The God before whom sin cannot bear to be. It, it melts away in his presence. It is obliterated before him. One day, Jude says, the day is coming 
that while the seraphim shield their faces and all creation, all the cosmos resounds and reverberates with his glory, the elders fall on their faces and creatures cry, worthy is the lamb. And the immensity of his white, hot holiness and purity blazes from his throne. One day, you, Christian, little old you, little old me, will stand before that glorious throne and we will be unashamed. We will stand before him blameless. Not just barely pardoned by the skin of our teeth, but blameless. Can you imagine it? You know your own sin. You know the wickedness that harbors in the crevices of your heart. You know the thoughts of resentment to which you cling. You know the stubbornness of sin in which you indulge. You know it all now, and you know it all too well. You fear that if the Lord of glory were to appear in this room this morning, you would be annihilated in his presence, vaporized, sinful as you be. And yet scripture says there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And Jude says that there's coming a day when you will stand before his glory, not condemned, not vaporized or otherwise wiped away. No, you will stand before the presence of his glory blameless. And what a day that will be. How in the world will this possibly happen? Well, Jude tells us that he is able to keep your feet from stumbling so that you will travel along the steep road, hard and wearying as it is, the road of the Christian life. And he is able to keep you so that you will, you will, you will enter into the kingdom of glory. He is able so that however paltry you may feel your faith to be, however foul your sin in your own estimation, however pathetic and pitiful you feel your own advancing in holiness is, At the end of days, when you do stand before the majestic presence, if you come trusting, if you come clinging to Christ, you will be found and declared not wanting, not lacking, but instead blameless in his sight. There's enough to want to make you give up. Your own sin and failings, the sin and betrayal that you've endured at the hands of your own friends and family members, the wounds that you endure, it's part of reality of life in a fallen and sinful world. I've mentioned this story before, but I know an elderly Christian man who a few years ago went through an absolutely gut-wrenching, awful couple of years. I believe within a span of 18 months, burying his adult son, and then a teenage grandson, and then another adult son, And then finally, six months later, burying his wife of 50-plus years. How in the world, given a season like he's endured, how in the world does he press on? And there's plenty more people that we all know enduring situations just like this man. How do they keep from stumbling or sinking in sin or sinking in utter despair? Yet there is a day coming when they who are kept by Christ will appear before him, God the Father Almighty, if we, can, if we can use our reverent imaginations for a moment based on the teaching of the scripture, there's coming a day when God the Father Almighty will turn to the Son and he will say, look, look what your blood bought and paid for. Look at what the Spirit has wrought. Look at what grace has sealed. And the Son turns to the Father and says, this is one of whom I am not ashamed to be called his brother. 
He is your adopted child and he is before you at last presented to you blameless. How can Jude not burst forth in praise as he contemplates this reality? Oh, how we need to fill our minds and our vision with Christ. How we need to clamp down into the doctrines of mercy and power and sovereignty and covenant. How we need to fix our gaze on his splendor and lift our heads toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How we need to turn our gaze away from our our narrow, truncated, tunnel vision scope of our own feeble efforts our own sin-fraught performance, frustrated so much by our own failures, how we must look instead to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom belongs glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever, and see him exercise all his power to keep you and to preserve you until that day when we are brought blameless at last into the presence of his glory, finally finally at home. Where's the strength from which we can draw to fight the fight to which we've been called? It's right there. Jude 24 and 25. Oh, my friends, the battle is fierce and the warfare is long and we are called to press on and to endure. Strong in the strength that God supplies through his eternal son. So look to him. Not just to endure and fight the good fight, but even more than that, look to him to revel in adoration of him, to delight and enjoy our God, the God of glory and grace, the God of sovereignty and splendor, the God of mercy and might. What a glorious God indeed. Praise him for his word to us today. Let's all pray. Oh, how we long for that day, Lord God, and as we yearn for it, as we cry, come, Lord Jesus, would you strengthen our hearts and give us joy knowing that though we are weak, he is able. Teach us to rest there and to press on in faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.